1: The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks.
0: Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. The pandemic has done little to cool off the fighting in Ukraine, where bullets and bombs continue to fly along the contact line in Donbass. With casualties mounting and diplomatic developments seemingly feckless in the ability to stop the conflict, we ask what's next and what hope is there for the fighting to end. To answer those questions is Dr. Michael Mackay, a Canadian involved in Ukraine since independence, working in the country as a university lecturer, internet project director, and election observer. Dr. Mackay, thank you for joining The Crisis Next Door.
1: Thank you very much, Jason. Good to be here.
0: Michael, the fighting has been steady, and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe monitors stationed along the control line reported consistent denials of access by Ukrainian troops to Russian troops and separatists from the People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. Can you give us an overview of the current fighting, how many troops on either side, and where the Russians are trying to make the biggest push?
1: Okay, so the fighting is in two of the regions of Ukraine in the east, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk. Um, Russian forces occupy the southern, southeastern parts of both of these oblasts, and uh, those are the most populous parts. So in Luhansk, it includes the uh, regional capital, which is Luhansk. In Donetsk, it's the regional capital, Donetsk. And uh, Ukrainian forces... Uh, control the uh, northern and, uh, and western parts of this area. So, what uh, it's called officially is the uh, um, you know, occupied uh, regions of uh, Donbass, because this is part of Donbass. Um, and, and so, it's, it's occupied by uh, Russian Federation forces. So, that's where the fighting takes place. And if we look at the battlefront, it goes um, in Luhansk uh, pretty much along the Sibirsky Donetsk River, um, which is north of uh, Luhansk uh, City. Um, it comes down uh, as it crosses into Donetsk uh, Oblast in a region that's now called the Svitlodarsk Bulge, because it's a bulge in the battle line, uh, around the city of Horlivka, which is uh, Russian-occupied. Uh, and then to the west of occupied Donetsk, to the west of occupied uh, Dokuchayevsk, and then to the east of Mariupol, which remains in Ukrainian hands, and that's where it's at the Sea of Azov.
0: We often get these comparisons to World War I and trench warfare. Is that still applicable? Have the front lines been very static over these past six years, or has there been much movement?
1: It is very much applicable. Uh, World War One is the right analogy. It is like um, how the Western Front looked from, um, let's say, the end of uh, 1914 up to the beginning of 1918, a uh, relatively static um, trench warfare with fortifications, so very much like that. And also, and this is very curious, the way it's like uh, World War One. not significant use of air power. You know, we know that in World War One, uh, air power was in its infancy. And here we don't see use of substantial air assets. We see kind of, you know, the modern light equivalents like drones uh, in use. Um, so it's the comparison to World War One is right on the money.
0: I don't think Russia is fooling anyone in when it says it's not taking part in the Ukraine war. Uh, obviously, there are Russian troops over the border. But why do you think Moscow is not used Air power is it because it would just tip the hand too much and make it obvious that it is involved in the war?
1: Um, yes, and I also think it it is it is a question of capacity. Um, I think people overestimate the capacity of the Russians to wage conventional war. The war that Putin is is is, w- is waging is not just the one he wants to wage; it's the one he pretty much has to wage he is using extensive use of mercenaries for example um not using a uh, substantial uh, air or naval assets for that matter um not really using uh rockets much uh, except for example in the early uh, year of the war uh so i think people need to realize that this war is is the war that putin can fight
0: you know it- is there still much in the way of uh, Russian armaments and men flowing across the border? Uh, how is Moscow supplying the separatists in eastern part of Ukraine? It's,
1: it's substantial because there is no source of armaments within this area. All of it comes from the Russian Federation. So how they're doing it, um, they're doing it um, primarily by rail, Uh, because that's an efficient way, for example, to move fuel, Uh, so rail. They are using military convoys, uh, especially over the border between Rostov and the southern part of Donetsk. They usually do night convoys across the border, which they exclusively control. And they also supply their army with what they disguise as humanitarian convoys. They've uh, sent just under 100 of these since uh, late 2014, Um, And these, they drive across the border, usually into luhansk Oblast, for distribution from uh, Krivnyri and Luhansk uh, to their troops there. So the Russian forces are entirely supplied uh, with uh, weapons and ammunition and fuel uh, from the Russian Federation.
0: This has obviously been a tremendous stress on Kiev how are Ukrainian troops faring in the field? How well supplied are they right now? And how is manpower? Are are they able to bring in new troops and rotate out in order to maintain
1: uh, proper motivation and health of their troops at the front line? Mm-hmm. Well, um, Ukraine now has a standing army of a quarter of a million active members. And on the Donbass battlefront, there are anywhere between uh, thirty and 50,000 uh, Ukrainian troops at, at a time. Um, it's organized by the Ukrainian army as what's called the Joint Forces Operation. Now, the Ukrainian army does have conscription, but all the soldiers in Donbass are volunteers. So there's only service on the battlefront to volunteers. Um, and uh, I would say the morale is relatively high because don't forget these soldiers are defending their homeland you know it's it's a point of they would be fighting no matter what now you mentioned supply they are overwhelmingly supplied domestically see ukraine has and especially now a very well developed defense armament industry um there is a state conglomerate that coordinates all of this so if you look at the um weapons and ammunition and uniforms and so on that the uh, ukrainian soldiers have it's almost entirely uh, from domestic sources
0: how critical is that given that there has been a reliance to some degree on the west and the u.s for aid Uh, how important is it for ukraine to be able to supply itself to maintain that fight against the
1: russians it's it's essential um, I would say that what, the way it's worked out is that the aid from the West has been not a telling factor on the battlefield. What it's done is been a huge support to morale because it shows that the West is on Ukraine's side. So for example, um, let's give an example of this. Uh, the US authorized um, the sale of uh, a javelin Um, anti-tank guided missile systems to Ukraine a couple of years ago but these missiles are not authorized to be deployed to the battlefront uh, except in extreme circumstances and basically with the say-so of the Americans so what are the Ukrainians using well they're using domestically produced ATGMs like the Corsair and the Stupna P and they're using these regularly so these are produced in Ukraine so we might call the Javelin a fifth generation, but the Corsair is like a fourth generation and Stugna P is a, a simpler uh, portable type of ATGM, but they're used very effectively. So it's important that Ukraine get this Western support, um, but in terms of the battlefield, it's it's about morale, it's about support, but in terms of effective defense of Ukraine, it is, Ukrainian soldiers defending Ukrainian land almost entirely with uh, Ukrainian produced uh, ammunition and weapons.
0: And speaking of Western support, getting reports that the Pentagon told Congress that Kiev hit key milestones on institutional reforms. So it should get an additional $125 million in military assistance, including patrol boats, mobile radar systems, ambulances, and communications gear. Uh, How critical Will those supplies be? And in particular, are there certain aspects of the war in which those supplies will help the Ukrainians?
1: I think really the, the key issue, I think, is the finance. It's the amount of money that it is. And that is where Ukraine um, needs a lot of help. I mean, they are spending anywhere to 5 to 6% of their GDP on defense now, which we know is... Uh, you know, and that's, that's in the neighborhood of, of what, for example, the United States thinks. And it's certainly far above what any other European power spends on defense. And this is from a country that is the poorest or second poorest country in Europe. Um, so it's a substantial, um, you know, outlay. Um, so I think it's, it's the money. Uh, in terms of what the actual supplies are, I think they are uh, important. The uh, island-class patrol boats, uh, there are two in service already, and now it, it looks like more have been approved. That's really important for what Ukraine is trying to do um, on the naval front. They're building a what they call a mosquito fleet. Now, they have their own uh, domestically produced gunboats. So, you know, we I don't want to make it seem like Ukraine is this, you know, mere recipient of aid. In fact, they have these newly produced uh, Gurza-M uh, gunboats, which come from a shipyard uh, near Kiev and that's what they're deploying uh, to odessa um two of them by the way were the ones that were captured um uh, in the battle in the uh black sea um a year and a half ago uh, so they were subsequently um uh, released back to ukraine so uh, two of the of the ones that captured were these modern uh, ukrainian produced gunboats and then another was a older tug uh, so i think it's important that this uh aid becoming uh, for the United States, um, but I think it's mostly in the issue of finance.
0: Michael, is Russia still blocking Ukrainian movement through the Sea of Azov and Black Sea?
1: Yes, and this is mostly economic warfare um, because what it does is it cuts off Mariupol and Berdyansk, which are the two Ukrainian ports on the Sea of Azov. So it, it amounts to restrictions, it's, it's delay. And of course, in the whole world of international shipping, uh, delay is you know it's it's death to uh, to the economy of moving this. So it's it's a way of uh, starving the economy uh, in the whole Sea of Azov region.
0: Do you think it's Putin's strategy to keep the Ukrainian army engaged and mire the country in instability, economic instability? or does it hope to carve out more territory for the breakaway regions or even go farther and claim out more of Ukraine for itself?
1: I think it's both. Uh, It's important for Putin to present Ukraine as a failed state, um, which it's constantly doing, Um, but they've always been attempting to take more land. I mean, what is the point of uh, the daily bombardments that are not accompanied by, for example, infantry movements. So, you know, they're not directly trying to take land. The, the answer is provocation, right? To, to try to, um, to stir things up to, yes, as you say, keep the Ukrainian army engaged, but to be prepared to exploit um, any weakness. You know, it, they're forcing the Ukrainians to remain engaged, to remain stable, to hold the line, which is um, like 470 kilometers long. Um, and it's, it's fortified at every point because it's under attack at every point.
0: Michael, what's your take on Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky? His predecessor, Petro Poroshenko, never got anywhere with Moscow and increasingly grew frustrated. while well, Zelensky was seen as a potential hope to end the war when he was elected in April of 2019. Yet it doesn't seem anywhere closer to ending at this date.
1: Yes, because he he came with a platform of peace and ending the war, but there was nothing behind this platform there was there was no mechanism of how to do this. Oh, I will talk with Putin but and if, for example, that happened uh, in Paris uh, at the end of last year but the result was the same as before it was no different than under poroshenko there was a declaration. Um, And there, but there was no follow through and this continues to be the case. So um, I think there there was never any substance to how uh, President Zelensky was going to end the war. And I think we're seeing that, you know, what, what he's done has not actually led in that direction.
0: Political opponents of Zelensky has accused him of being willing to sacrifice Ukrainian sovereignty and independence or... Those unsubstantiated accusations, or are they on point?
1: They are on point. Um, uh, President Zelensky uh, agreed with practically no consultation to sign a declaration that has been known as the Steinmeier Formula. And what this was, was a stripped down version of the Minsk Agreement. It basically ignored the parts of the Minsk Agreement that were uncomfortable for Russia, like removing foreign troops, like uh, returning control of the international border to uh, Ukrainian and Russian control, like giving OSC monitors access. Uh, It stripped away those and just left a couple of things. One was there should be elections in Donbas and, um, and that Ukraine should withdraw from specific areas of Ukraine. And President Zelensky did order the Ukrainian army to withdraw from three areas of Ukraine. And this was not met by a, subsequent, uh, a corresponding withdrawal by the Russians or an actual ceasefire. So it, since he literally gave up Ukrainian land, I think the critics are correct to say that he gave up sovereignty and territorial integrity.
0: The recent Steinmeier formula, like the prior Minsk agreements, put a focus on autonomy for the breakaway regions. How critical is that factor? And, and should, be that, should that be the future for Luhansk and Donetsk as part of Ukraine to be run autonomously
1: in the future? Um, not in the terms that the Steinmeier formula views it. Um, this is a procedure um, of uh, federalization which um, the Russian aggressors have been pushing on Ukraine consistently. And it's a a divide and conquer. What should be happening is regional autonomy and power under formulas devised by Ukraine's partnership with the European Union. And we've already seen that in play. And it's about, for example, spending power uh, being devolved to the oblasts. And for example, there have been tremendous benefits in free Ukraine in, for example, transportation, you know, that a pretty much appalling public transportation system, you know, I'm talking about buses and so on, has been substantially improved in the smaller Ukrainian cities because money has gone to these regions. So in that sense, yes, autonomy is essential, more regional power, but what the formula of uh, the uh from from Steinmeier uh, is saying is well let's actually have elections and recognize these representatives of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic as being actual representatives of the region when in fact they are proxies for the Russian occupation regime so it's kind of it's it's serving the Russian agenda but it's not actually serving uh, the agenda of reform in Ukraine
0: Michael, Russia has been hit with sanctions over the war in Ukraine. Are they having any discernible effect? And does Putin view the sanctions as a small price to pay in order to keep Ukraine from joining NATO or the EU?
1: I think uh, sanctions are a real pain for Putin. Uh, If they weren't, he wouldn't keep talking about them. He wouldn't keep trying to have them um, lifted. So on the one hand, he presents the... uh, The face of, oh, sanctions have no effect on us, we don't care about them, Uh, Western powers are wasting their time. But the other time, he works, on the other hand, he works extremely hard um, uh, to get them lifted. Uh, For example, um, the uh, Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, to its great shame, uh, lifted sanctions on Russia and allowed them to participate in this international human rights body. So, uh, you know, and this was a great victory for the Russians, that what, whatever they want, they want to see sanctions lifted without having it any impact on their aggression in Ukraine. Do they have an economic effect? Um, and the answer is yes. The sanctions are quite light uh, compared to what they should be, but they still have a substantial effect on um, the Russian economy. And for example, we can see this um, exacerbated in current conditions where oil and gas revenue has declined dramatically for Russia um, because of basically the spat they got into with Saudi Arabia. And this, so that and sanctions means the ability uh, that Putin has for aggression in Ukraine is curtailed.
0: Six years into war, is it realistic for Ukraine to dream about NATO or EU membership?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, these aspirations are constitutionally embedded uh, in Ukraine. The timeline is, of course, what people um, always wonder about. But the, the groundwork is there. You know, in a sense, all of this got started with the EU-Ukraine Association Agreement. You know, uh, President Yanukovych. Uh, arbitrarily withdrew from the negotiations. This led to the protests in Kiev, which started out as a, you know, let's get back in the association agreement protest and then expanded into uh, Euromaidan. When Euromaidan succeeded and Yanukovych fled the country, he then called on Russia to invade and then Russia did in Crimea mm-hmm. and then a couple months later in Donbas. So, the, and part of the association agreement is that ukraine is in europe is entitled to eu membership what if the eventual adoption of this agreement led to was deep and comprehensive free trade agreement with ukraine visa travel free travel in the entire schengen zone with ukraine so the integration is underway um there there is a, a path to eu membership for ukraine how long that take path takes i'm not so sure of course It depends, like, for example, in a small way, the visa-free travel depended upon Ukraine making some 400 different reforms to its regulations and laws and so on. And they met all these requirements. We know that EU membership is going to be even bigger than that, right? So how long it takes, I'm not sure, but the path is there. And as for NATO, well, uh, in another sense in which this all started was in 2008 when the membership action plan was not extended to Georgia and Ukraine, um, largely as a result of German and French press pressure, because at the time, the United States was in favor of this. And uh, a few months later, uh, Russia invaded Georgia. Um, and then um, uh, six years after that, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, the members that had been excluded from the membership action plan. So now we see a partnership, we see different kinds of language of uh, engagement, Um, Certainly from the Ukrainian side, I would say support for NATO membership among the Ukrainian population is greater than it is in some NATO members. Um, So there definitely is a push there. um, And for many NATO members, the push there as well. Again, when will there be membership? I don't know, but the path to it is laid out.
0: And certainly an uncertain future in the meantime, as the war does continue in Ukraine, but hopefully one day peace will prevail. Uh, Dr. Mackay, thank you very much for joining us here today on The Crisis Next Door.
1: Thank you very much.
0: We've been joined by Dr. Michael Mackay, a Canadian involved in Ukraine since independence, working in the country as a university lecturer, internet project director, and election observer. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The
1: Crisis Next Door with host Jason
0: Brooks is produced weekly.
1: If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com.
0: TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone.